If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. Because we intend to fire our people up so much until if they can't have their equal share in the house, they'll burn it down. This Civil Rights Act is a challenge to all of us to go to work in our communities and our states, in our homes and in our hearts, to eliminate the last vestiges of injustice. Welcome to this new History Extra podcast series, where we'll be charting key moments in the transformative history of the US civil rights movement. This fight for equality dominated mid-20th century America, and its consequences have reverberated around the world as well as down the decades. I'm Rhiannon Davis, section editor for BBC History magazine, and over the next six episodes, I'll be speaking to leading historians to explore some of the crucial moments that defined the fight for civil rights. As there's so much history to this history, each episode, our experts will recount one significant story from the movement and explore its place in the wider struggle for civil rights. 
we'll be discussing some of the men and women who have been enshrined as heroes of the movement, such as Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks, as well as shining a light on some of the thousands of forgotten grassroots activists who helped pave the way for change through marching in protests, taking part in boycotts, or even sacrificing their jobs, their freedom, and in some cases their lives in pursuit of racial equality. Our first episode sees us travel back to 1955 as Mississippi bakes in the summer sun. Emmett Till, a black 14-year-old boy, has travelled down to the deep south from his native Chicago to enjoy the long summer days with his extended family. However, his vacation quickly descends into a nightmare. Devery Anderson, an author who's written a biography of Till, shares the teenager's tragic story. Please be aware that this episode contains graphic details that some listeners may find disturbing. Emmett Till was a 14-year-old African-American youth from Chicago who, in the summer of 1955, took a train to Mississippi with his great-uncle and a cousin to spend the last two weeks of summer vacation in Mississippi. While he was there, he broke one of the taboos that he did not understand, but which Black people in Mississippi understood well, and that is uh, a Black man talking in any way familiar with a white woman. And while in Money, Mississippi, Emmett Till went into a little grocery store after picking cotton for the day with his cousins. They went into the store to buy some refreshments. While in there, he said something to the woman that upset her. This was Caroline Bryant, a 21-year-old who was born and raised in the South and who worked in Bryant's grocery and meat market in Money, Mississippi. She followed him out of the store. When she did, he turned to her and waved and said bye, which you didn't do if you were black. You would say goodbye, ma'am, and and do so formally. He was joking around when he said that. She got upset, started towards a car to get something, and then he whistled at her. And when that happened, it scared everybody. Uh, She was actually on her way to get a gun. Emmett and his cousins got scared. They got back in their car and they drove off. They kind of forgot about this incident, but three days later, in the middle of the night, the woman's husband, Roy Bryant, and his half-brother, J.W. Milam, and others came to Moses Wright's home. Moses Wright was Emmett's uncle. Uh, They demanded the boy from Chicago who, quote, did the talking and money, They found him in bed, they made him get dressed, they took him away, and he was never seen alive again by his family. Three days later, his body surfaced in the Tallahatchie River. He had been shot, beaten, tortured, and his head was wrapped around uh, with barbed wire connected to a 75-pound cotton gin fan so that his body would sink into the river and never be seen again. His body surfaced, however, uh, three days later, and after his mother was notified of what happened, the body was sent north to Chicago. Emma Till's mother saw what these men had done to her son when she examined the body and saw the condition of it, and she said that the world needs to see what I've seen, and she insisted on an open casket funeral. 
that decision attracted the the black press from from all around the country and photos of Emmett Till's face were published in Jet Magazine and other uh, newspapers of the black press and it caused the story to become an international one. The men were indicted, Roy Bryant, the husband of Carolyn Bryant and J.W. Milam were indicted for kidnapping and murder on Labor Day to September 6th, just a few days after the body was discovered. And they went on trial on September 19th. The first two days of the trial were taken up with jury selection, but then two and a half days of testimony followed. The sheriff who arrested them for kidnapping testified that they confessed to kidnapping Emmett Till, but they said they let him go. Emmett Till's great uncle testified that the body he identified at the river when the police brought him there, that that body was Emmett Till. Emmett Till's mother testified that she recognized her son. The defense said that the body was uh, not Emmett Till. Uh, They brought in the sheriff and a doctor who both testified that the body had been in the river much too long to have been Emmett Till. And the jury ended up believing that story. And after uh, 67 minutes of deliberation, the jury acquitted the men of this murder. A couple months later, they went on, uh, they formed another grand jury to indict them on kidnapping charges. And despite the confessions of kidnapping, the grand jury did not even indict in this case, and the men were free. But secretly, what was going on in the background just before the grand jury met on the kidnapping charges, J.W. Milam and Roy Bryant sold their story to a reporter named William Bradford Huey. And because they could not be tried again, they had been acquitted, therefore could not be tried again. They sold their story and told how they uh, kidnapped and brutally murdered Emmett Till. And that story appeared in the January 1956 issue of Look Magazine. So not only did they get away with murder and kidnapping, they also got paid uh, for having done so when you look at it that way. How was it that two white men could, as Devery says, legally get away with murder? To answer that question, we need to rewind by almost a century back to Reconstruction America. This is the period following the Union's victory in the American Civil War in 1865. Adrienne Lent-Smith, an associate professor in history at Duke University, who is an expert in the civil rights movement and the historical consultant for this series, explains why this period was so pivotal in shaping the course of U.S. race relations. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. 
That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. The end of the Civil War and with it, the end of the system of slavery brought the question of what were Black people, if not enslaved, to the fore of the national conversation. And in this period, in the 1860s, formerly enslaved people and freed people who'd kind of lived at the margins among them pushed the question. They demanded a reckoning with the history of slavery and a a vision of the present and future that did not continue the practices and the imaginations of slavery with it. So through Black self-advocacy, Black testimony, and then ultimately the support of some folks in Congress, Americans got the Civil War Amendments, the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th Amendment, which, one, ended slavery, the second made African Americans citizens and said that they were protected by those rights of citizenship, and then the 15th gave universal manhood suffrage. Manhood, it being the first time that the Constitution explicitly limits the vote to men, which causes tensions with the feminist movement who'd been part of the abolitionist movement that would continue into the 20th century. After the passage and then the ratification of the Civil Rights Amendments, this incredible experiment in American democracy. You have Black people in politics across the board. You have visions of what an empowered and vibrant civic life would look like. You have an expansion of public education for all Americans, but led by African Americans who understood education as being a key thing. These developments deeply unsettled many white Americans, particularly in the South. The response is to invigorate a rhetoric of white supremacy that is designed to get 
everyday white folks to understand their racial identity as being far more important than any other part of who they are, and to work often against their own material interests in service to the ideological project of white supremacy. So born in the 1890s, the sort of, you know, the work of Reconstruction has been gradually undone. One way Reconstruction was rolled back was through systematic attacks on Black Americans' voting rights. So the 15th Amendment established universal manhood suffrage. It guaranteed for Black men the right to vote. Again, laws can have workarounds, particularly if people create a coordinated project with which to do that. In 1890, the Mississippi State Legislature were innovators. They came up with some very modern and effective ideas for how to push African Americans out of the public sphere without expressly contravening the 15th Amendment. Of course, they are contravening the 15th Amendment, but they don't say you can't vote. Instead, they say there's going to be a poll tax. You have to pay a certain amount of money in order to register to vote. They say there's going to be a literacy test locally administered so that the person in front of you who is, again, a white person opposed to black voting will decide whether or not you've passed that test. They say that we're going to create a grandfather clause, which says that if your grandfather was a voter in this county, then you can be. Otherwise, you're subject to all of these other restrictions. But of course, for African Americans in the 1890s, their grandparents, by and large, were enslaved. Mississippi starts this. It's effective in Mississippi, and so effective that slowly, place after place after place, southern states adopt many of the same tactics. So that by the early 1900s, in in most of the states in the former Confederacy, the majority of African Americans have been disfranchised. Sometimes there are kind of urban centers where you'll see a few, but by and large, Black political power has been completely gutted by the beginning of the 20th century. We talk about this as a phenomenon separate from racial violence and racial terror, but we shouldn't because it's also in this period, in this period of the sort of like formulation and codification of Jim Crow voting laws and other kind of segregation laws that we see a huge spike in the number of lynchings. And when I say lynchings, I mean giant not cover of night, not the kind of lynching that will be what poor Emmett Till experiences, but I mean things that look more like carnivals or county fairs, where they're sometimes advertised ahead of time, you know, hundreds, even more, sometimes crowds gather, they sing hymns, they sell lemonade, and they take away pieces of bodies as souvenirs. It's one of a period of gruesome spectacle that both created the atmosphere that terrorized Black folks out of continuing to fight to try to to save their vote and marked the triumph of white supremacy. And it was one landmark decision from the US Supreme Court in the 1890s that meant racial inequality in the Jim Crow South was ruled constitutional at the highest federal level. 
It's really the Supreme Court in 1896 with the case of Plessy versus Ferguson, which arises out of Homer Plessy protesting attempts to move him out of his seat on a train. Homer Plessy's choice not to vacate his seat wasn't a spur-of-the-moment decision. He had agreed to board the train to test whether Louisiana's separate car act of 1890 was constitutional. This piece of legislation demanded that all railroads running in Louisiana had to offer what was termed equal but separate accommodations for their black and white passengers. Plessy was mixed race, and he sat in a seat reserved for white passengers on the train. However, he was asked to move to a carriage meant for black riders and refused, leading to his arrest and the eventual court case that Adrienne is about to describe. Plessy's experience grows into a Supreme Court case That, in 1896, generates a ruling where they say that there is nothing inherently unconstitutional about segregation so long as things are equal, right? So Plessy encodes the principle of separate but equal into American law. And it's really that combined with moments of mass violence and sort of white-led racial riots at the end of the 1890s that President McKinley does nothing about that announces that the federal government, which had during Reconstruction been a protector of black civil rights, would no longer be in the business of trying to make citizenship a meaningful category for many of its citizens. With the Plessy versus Ferguson ruling, the US government had given Jim Crow their seal of approval. So what was life like for black Americans living in the South during the time of legally sanctioned segregation? I teach in a university and always there are students who are like, oh, I thought that Jim Crow was just people having to drink out of separate water fountains. And I'm like, no. Jim Crow is sending your child to the store and not knowing if they're going to come back home. Jim Crow is getting killed and then having a race riot led by, again, vigilantes erupt because you went to step in an elevator and didn't realize a white woman was in there and then you get accused of rape. People need to understand how ghastly and all-consuming that it was. Fears surrounding sexual violence were a key element of the white supremacist rhetoric, as we see in the case of Emmett Till, whose attackers claimed that they were acting in retribution for the teen's interaction with Caroline Bryant. Sexual violence is a large component of the story, in part because white supremacy is a patriarchal system. And so there are all of these elisions that are made between white political vulnerability and white women's vulnerability. And they actually use rape scares, kind of newspapers falsely trumpeting all of these allegations of rape as a way to stoke the politics of fear. That is what drives people to double down on their commitments to whiteness. Even from the very construction of Jim Crow there's been this this coming together of those things. By the time we get to Emmett Till, people have been banging this drum or talking about it in this way for decades upon decades upon decades. The hideous child murderers who go after Till learned that language 
as they were learning to walk and as they were learning to talk. And that was always a language of violence and destruction. After hearing about Emmett's terrible fate, I was curious to learn what he was like as a person. Devery Anderson met his mother, Mammy Till Mobley, and shared how she remembered her son. Emmett Till, according to his mother, when I interviewed her, she described him as a boy she's found to be very ordinary, but as she looked at the youth of the day, when I interviewed her, this was 1996, the first time, she said that compared to the youth of today, he was very extraordinary. And she described him as very helpful to her. He was very uh, uh, helpful at home because she worked so many hours, sometimes seven days a week. So he would do the shopping, he would do the laundry, he would clean the house. And that was an arrangement she said he offered to her in exchange for her you know, working so hard to support them. His friends, however, saw him more as a practical joker, someone who needed to be the center of attention, who paid people to tell jokes, who uh, could be mischievous. One of his cousins said that he was the kind of kid who would uh, uh, pull the fire alarm at school just to be funny and to, to get attention. So like most kids, you act one way to adults, you act a different way around your friends. Emmett was a fish out of water that summer in Mississippi, as his native Chicago was a world away from the Deep South. In Chicago and in the North, there was still racism, of course. That was uh, obvious and prevalent throughout the United States. The difference between the North and South is in the South, it was uh, done by statute. Mississippi in 1955, when Emmett Till came there from Chicago to visit, was fully segregated. Whites and blacks attended separate schools. Uh, Publicly, they used different bathrooms. They used different drinking fountains. They, restaurants, they were segregated. They had to sit in a certain section in the restaurant away from whites. In movie theaters, they had to sit in the balcony. And if, and on buses and public transportation, they had to sit in the back. And where they couldn't be segregated easily, Blacks simply had to go without. Uh, there were some libraries and restaurants that wouldn't let them even in because they, they couldn't, they were too small or couldn't really segregate very well. Most black citizens in the South at the time were impoverished. They worked as sharecroppers or domestic servants. And that system of inequality, it was supposed to be a system of separate but equal The separate part, the South got down very well, but separating people in such a way, the equality part could never really emerge. At the start of this episode, Devery shared the story of what he thinks happened when Emmett entered that grocery store in money back in the summer of 1955. However, piecing together the events of that fateful encounter proved a mammoth undertaking, as many of the key witnesses had conflicting stories about what had happened within Bryant's grocery and meat market. Caroline Bryant, for instance, testified in 1955 that while Emmett was alone with her in the store, he had taken her by the hand and touched her waist, before telling her he had had relations with white women before. People have debated whether she was telling the truth ever since. And in 2017, Timothy B. Tyson, a senior research scholar at Duke University, released his book, The Blood of Emmett Till, 
which featured quotes from his interviews with Caroline Bryant. In it, he alleged that Bryant had admitted to him that she had lied, writing, but about her testimony that Till had grabbed her around the waist and uttered obscenities, she now told me, that part's not true. This statement wasn't recorded on tape, and her family still denied that she said this. Emmett's friends had always told a different story. His cousin, Simeon Wright, recalled that he had joined Emmett in the store within a minute, and when he arrived, he didn't see or hear any evidence of what he called lecherous conversation. Oral histories and just recording and trying to determine what happened at the store and pretty much in any uh, aspect of this case has been difficult. It was difficult for me, and it was a, it was a challenge uh, in writing my book because People at the Bryant Grocery and Meat Market, for example, Emmett was with several kids, you know, his cousins and some neighbors, and there were others who were out there playing checkers who were already at the store. Now, not everybody was interviewed, uh, publicly at least, but amongst those there, uh, Simeon Wright, Maurice Wright, Wheeler Parker, Ruth Crawford, Roosevelt Crawford, who were interviewed, most of them at the time and some later on, they told confl- conflicting stories. It's, and some of these people, such as Simeon Wright and Wheeler Parker, told one story at the time, and then 50, 60, nearly 70 years later tell a different story. When I interviewed Wheeler Parker and Simeon Wright together, Wheeler had to rely on Simeon's memory to even remember the most basic details. And Simeon's memory was conflicting from things he had said earlier. So to to determine what really happened, of course, I I went to the earliest sources and checked out the various interviews that people gave and compared that to what they said today. And kind of working that out and just examining everything came to the best conclusions I could. And most of the time, I went with the earliest tellings of the story. If you tell something a couple days later, and you tell it again 50, 60, 70 years later, and there's a contradiction. The earliest account is generally the most accurate. But we have that as far as what happened in the store. And the night of the kidnapping, not so much, because Moses Wright was the chief source of that, and he told his story several times in court and to reporters prior to the trial. So we're able to determine what happened the night of the kidnapping pretty well. Um, then, of course, we have Milo and Bryant's story is told in Look magazine and what really happened there because there were others involved. It was tough to determine who was actually present for the murder. And while none of these people ever came forward and said, I was there, one of them did, Leslie Milam, who ran the plantation where Emmett Till was beaten and shot, where the shed was. Emmett was taken to the storage shed and tortured inside. That plantation run by Leslie Milam, the night before he died, 1974, he called a minister to his home to confess his role in the case. That minister came forward uh, during the FBI investigation in 2004, and I interviewed him as well a few years later, a man named Macklin Hubble. And so we know Leslie Milam's involvement. We, We were always able to determine he was likely involved because of the murder taking place on the plantation he ran. Uh, But there were other men, Melvin Campbell and Elmer Kimball, who were safe in determining that they were involved. 
and then the black men who were involved. Uh, there were different names that surfaced over the years, some much later that weren't learned about until the FBI investigation in 2004. There were uh, three or four black men also involved uh, who helped restrain Emmett Till on the back of the truck and who cleaned up the mess after he was killed. These were men who worked for J.W. Milam and Roy Bryant and who really were forced to go along with it. The FBI had reopened the case to try and discover if any other individuals had been involved in Emmett's death beyond Roy Bryant and J.W. Millam. However, in 2006, they announced that the statute of limitations on the case had expired, so no federal prosecution was possible. And so again, this is decades removed from the actual crime, and so it's harder to say yes for sure. These men were on the truck or these men came along later and helped clean up the mess. That's There's still some confusion there as far as who was involved at what stage, but we can pretty much determine who was involved. While it took decades to piece together the wider cast of men who were involved, one thing that has always been painfully clear is the amount of violence that was unleashed upon Emmett after he was dragged from his great-uncle Moses Wright's home. Listeners may find the following passage in particular disturbing. I mean, it was different than many lynchings. Lynchings were very common in the South in the 1920s. That era of lynching peaked, tapered off after that. But what Emmett Till went through, of course, he was only 14, and he was beaten mercilessly by one or more men in the shed and then shot, and his body dumped in the river. Now, the abuse of his body, one of the things that the FBI learned when his body was exhumed in 2005, when they were able to x-ray the body and perform an autopsy finally, the first one, they determined he was shot in the head. They found uh, broken bones beyond what anybody knew in 1955. In 1955, the examination on him was just visual. People saw his head. Most of the trauma was to his head that they could see. The rest of his body, although the skin was slipping off because it had been in the river for a few days, you couldn't really see signs of beating. But when his body uh, was exhumed and they x-rayed it, they found broken bones in his wrists. Uh, his wrists were broken and uh, bones in his legs were also broken. And so... The extent of the beating and violence done to his body was was far greater than what we had known. And they also were able to do examinations on his head to show where the skull was detached and where it had, pieces had broken off. And, and that people witnessed that when they put his body in the boat after taking it from the river. They saw that part of his skull fell off and it also fell off in the funeral home on the slab. But getting a picture of it now is what they were able to do. Now, some of this damage was obviously done when he was beaten and shot. Some of it was due to being in the river for three days. When you're shot and, and beaten like that, your body's going to bloat some and you're going to decompose faster. His body surfaced. It was in terrible condition. And that condition is what the people saw and what caused the story to become an internationally known case. When Mammy Till Mobley decided to have an open casket for her son, she rallied the protest power of Chicago's black community, many of whom also had family connections and roots in Mississippi. 
and her actions also fanned a flame of resistance that generations of African Americans had been burning for centuries. I would say that there has been a Black freedom struggle in the Americas since there have been Black people in the Americas. The very assertion that Black people could be owned and that ownership might be a denial of their humanity produces a resistance to what is, and when you think about it, an untenable and unprocessable. Like, it just, it can't be. We certainly have to talk about a a freedom struggle, if we think of the freedom struggle as resistance to Jim Crow, as coming up even as state legislatures were rewriting their constitutions. People protested the rewriting of state constitutions. Folks who were driven out of politics gave eloquent, angry, fiery speeches about being driven out of politics. Black Southerners voted with their feet, taking off and leaving this place. One of the important shifts without which we would not get a mid-century civil rights movement is the dem- the great demographic shift that is the Great Migration, where f- families left the South in droves, first for the North and later years for the West, many of them responding to the call of the Black newspaper, the Chicago Defender, which would say it is better to die in a northern winter than at the hands of a southern mob. The expressions, be they in music, be they in writing, be they in art, be they at church, that this should not be happening and that we have to find ways to stop it from happening are important parts of the freedom struggle. The organizational drive, the NAACP is founded in 1909 in response to a riot in Springfield, Illinois. So again, not the South, although many places feel like the South and have Southern folkways, but the NAACP is founded in response to white racial terror. It would take a while for it to grow. World War I would be a driver for that. But then there'd also be the Red Summer of 1919, which is a wave of racial violence that dampens civil rights energy. But basically, the Black freedom struggle unfolds across the 20th century, in intensified and empowered by the, the Great Migration, given language and a platform first through World War I, and then in the profound disappointments that followed kind of white racial retrenchment after World War I, a renewed resolve by many of the veterans of that first struggle to make sure that the Second World War meant more. World War II is in many ways a key moment in the Black freedom struggle and perhaps the originating moment of the civil rights movement. In that, you have a mass mobilization of African Americans, which involves not just the soldiers who are called up, but their families who support them, the churches who support them, the people who embrace them, and hear their testimony of all of the horrible betrayals that they experience fighting fascism overseas while experiencing things that many of them are willing to liken to or even call fascism at home. 
You don't look down the barrel of a Nazi gun. You don't bear witness to concentration camps and think that racial justice is an abstraction. And so part of the question that's called for Americans of all races and ethnicities is where are you going to stand in response to that? And that's that's the moment that the Brown v. Board decision emerges from. That's the moment that the Montgomery bus boycott comes out of. And it's also the moment that Emmett Till's murder comes out of. The case of Emmett Till and its role in sparking the civil rights movement, you could really look at a few different uh, things there that would have that caused that. First of all, he was only 14 years old. And while he wasn't the first 14-year-old or, or child to be lynched, he was the first one in a long time and certainly the first one that got any attention. So he, he was a child. He was from the North. And the North took interest in the story because he was from Chicago. And his mother was so insistent, she called the press right away. And reporters began gathering at her mother's home the day of the of the that she learned her son was kidnapped before the it was known that he was even dead and had been murdered. So the the northern press took an interest right away. The southern press did report on the kidnapping in a very short little story in the Greenwood papers and some other papers. But once the body uh, was discovered and she put him on display publicly, that attracted attention because she put his body on display and said she wanted the world to see what they had done to her son. The body was on display for five days after it arrived in Chicago and before the burial. And so thousands, tens of thousands of people, it's hard to really estimate how many filed past the casket, but tens of thousands at the very least filed past it. And so people saw in person what they had done. So she was able to put Southern racism on display in a way that nobody ever had. So between the fact that he was from the North, he was a child, and that his mother insisted on this open casket funeral, that created so much publicity so that by the time of the trial, reporters came from all over the world, all over the country and from Great Britain. There were protests after the trial and the acquittal uh, plays a role in this too because people were so outraged at what happened. But to see the men get away with murder, all of this just told the world what the South was like at the time. And so because you, it was too late to really do anything for Emmett Till, people were outraged. They were holding protests all over the country and in France. Now they just needed something to do, something to take all that anger and that energy, that grassroots level energy that was building and that's when the Montgomery bus boycott came along. And so that, that's, that's what started the movement as far as the first incident that the people could do something about. But it was pushed to that level, pushed to that state of mind within people because of the Emmett Till case. And in the next episode, we'll be delving into the history of the Montgomery bus boycott, revisiting the moment when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on the bus and exploring how that defiant act led to protests engulfing the nation. Many thanks to my experts for this episode, Devery Anderson, author of Emmett Till, 
the murder that shocked the world and propelled the civil rights movement. Published by the University Press of Mississippi in 2015, and Adrienne Lentz-Smith, Associate Professor of History at Duke University, who specialises in African-American history and 20th century US history. Adrienne is also the historical consultant for this series. This episode was written and researched by me, Rhiannon Davis, and it was produced by Brittany Colley. Additional checks were by Daniel Adamson. Thanks for listening. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.